Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another episode of Astronomy Misconceptions, Mistakes, Half-Truths, and Conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 10, a bonus episode for a special anniversary day of November 10th, 2011. Today I'm bringing you an interview with a man who goes by the pseudonym of Expat, and we're going to be talking about some of the, well, crazy ideas of Mike Barra. Expat is a semi-retired Brit who lives in California and runs the blog The Emoluments of Mars, also known as Dork Mission. Both titles are puns on the titles of books by Mike Barra and Richard Hoagland. Expat started his blog with James Oberg in April of 2008 to discuss the mistakes in Hoagland and Barra's book Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA. Since then, he's continued to talk about many of the misleading and outright false statements made by both of these men. A year ago tonight, on November 10th, 2010, Mike Barrow was on Coast to Coast AM and was quote-unquote interviewed by George Norrie about his latest book, The Choice. Expat was one of the callers into the program and was cut off by George in order to protect Barrow from being challenged by someone who actually knew what he was talking about. So now, without further blabbing on my part, welcome to Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy, Expat. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be, as George Norrie likes to say. Across the nation and around the world. Right across the nation around the world, yes. I'm happy to be on your podcast, Stuart, but thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you for coming and uh, being willing to be the guinea pig, because you are my first interview ever on a podcast or anywhere else. So you get to work out the bugs, uh, which will actually bring me to the first question. Uh, besides the blurb that I read, tell me about your background and your interest in the whole Barra and Hoagland mythos. Yes, okay. Well, I do actually have proper credentials in both physics and electrical engineering in the form of an honours degree from London University. However, I, I never really worked as a physicist and only very briefly in the engineering business. I didn't uh, take to it. Instead, I ended up um, making science documentaries for BBC television. And I began to specialize in space flight. This was the era of Gemini and Apollo. And the, uh, the cute thing is that actually, uh, my career was parallel with, um, Richard Hoagland's for a short while. Uh, he, As in you worked with him or you did uh, the same thing? I, I'm sure we were, we must have been together at NASA briefing at some point. We must have been, but. I don't recall ever meeting him. But while he was advising uh, CBS News on Apollo, I was producing the science aspects of the BBC's television coverage of from Apollo 13 on. I didn't do Apollo 11 or 12, but from Apollo 13 on, and I ended up, in fact, as executive producer in the very last Apollo of all, which was the Apollo Soyuz test project. So, uh, unlike Richard Hoagland, I stayed in television. I ended up making five full-length documentaries about spaceflight, including one hosted by Carl Sagan about exobiology. 
That was uh, that was broadcast to coincide with the landing of Viking on Mars in 1976. And the very last uh, connection I had with space on television was producing the BBC's coverage of the very first um, space shuttle mission. And again, that was sort of parallel to Richard Hoagland, at least as he claims. He says that he reported that mission for CNN. And in fact, CNN was in the very next trailer to ours at the Cape, and I don't remember seeing him at the time. So there we go. I, I have a, a, a very curious parallel career. I'm also uh, a published author. I've written seven books. Or, but one of them were about computer software, so I do know, um, I do know what it is to write a book. What was okay. the uh, other book that's, about? That's my background. Okay, what was the uh, other book about? Uh, the other book was uh, Life in Zero G. Ah. So, what's your interest with uh, the Barra and Hoagland mythos? Because even uh, if you were reporter and documentarian about the Apollo and other spaceflight issues, uh, it's not everyone who's interested in taking on or discussing or uh, even thinking about what uh, Richard Hoagland and Mike Barra actually say. Yes, well, I'm also, for my sins, a, um, an insomniac. <laughs> I generally have the radio on um, overnight. There was a time when my local PBS station broadcast the BBC World Service, and I had that in my ear hole, um, but they stopped that and played music instead. It was at that moment I discovered Coast to Coast AM, and I was just absolutely appalled by hearing somebody who is supposed to be a science advisor come up with uh, completely erroneous science facts. Um, so I, I just decided to take it on. Yeah, and for those listeners who don't know, uh, Richard Hoagland is billed as the official science advisor to Coast to Coast AM. And Richard was also the science advisor to Walter Cronkite, or at least that's his claim. Do you know if that's actually true? Oh, I think so, yes. But, okay. I mean, he, he he always emphasizes the Walter Cronkite. But I'm perfectly sure that, really, in reality, he was simply hired by CBS Television News, not specifically to Walter Cronkite. Okay. So you heard about Coast to Coast, or you listened to Coast to Coast, and you heard... Uh, these two people talking nonsense or making various uh, statements that were just factually untrue. So I think that we're going to focus more on Mike Barra rather than Hoagland for this interview. And specifically, I know you're interested in discussing his book, The Choice. Uh, could you first tell me a little bit about The Choice before we go into the specific Coast to Coast AM clip that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, it's a very slim book, actually. It didn't take him very long to write. It was the first book that he wrote as sole author. Um, Dark Mission was his first book ever, and that was, of course, uh, jointly authored with Hoagland. So this is Mike Barra striking out on his own, and he said in the blurb that this was the unified theory of uh, consciousness. Uh, on the front cover, it 
talks about using conscious thought and physics of the mind to reshape the world. Um, most of it is really boneheaded pseudo-psychology, um, but he does mix in conventional physics. He says that most physicists are blithering idiots, and in the course of trying to correct what he calls blithering idiocy, he becomes a bit of a blithering idiot himself. So it sounds like mostly that the book is uh, sort of what we would just lump into New Age woo, sort of we, you know, consciousness and you can do anything with your mind. Um, I think one of the taglines of the book is you've heard of the secret, now you can make the choice or now you need to make the choice, something like that. Yeah, that's correct. He, he, what he is saying is that we, but as, as the... The great consciousness events of 2012 come along, we have the choice. We can make the world however we want it to be. Uh, now, how all seven billion of us can simultaneously make the world into what we want to be is the question that I would love to ask him sometime. <laughs> that would be a good question. Um, so it's mostly about consciousness and New Age stuff, but he also incorporates uh, some claims about basic astronomy, basic physics, basic geometry. And that was actually the subject of your call into the Coast to Coast AM radio show. So you actually somehow managed to get through into Coast to Coast the night that Mike Barra was on, again, November 10th, 2010, hence why we're putting this out on November 10th, 2011. So we're going to play, or I'm going to play that call now, and also I'm going to play the response from Mike Barra and George Norrie after your call and after George cut you off. Yeah, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Um, I've read your book, um, and I've been trained as a physicist, one of those people who you call bithering idiots in the book. And my problem with your book is that whenever you get onto subjects that I understand to do with planetary uh, astronomy, the information that you give is, is plain wrong. And I'll give you an example. You, you are promoting this uh, idea of the planets being formed by sort of fission rather than accretion. And, and you talk about the eccentricity of the orbit of Mars. And, and here's what you write. You write, many of the planet's orbits should be perfectly circular by now, but they're actually highly elliptical. In fact, Mars' orbit is so eccentric that its distance from Earth goes from 34 million miles at the closest to 249 million miles at its greatest. Now, do you understand that that sentence is nonsense? Um, no, I understand that I know who you are, that you're obsessed with me, that you continually post things on the Internet about me because you're crazy. Whoa. And you're wrong. There's nothing that I put in the book that's, that's wrong. What you've accused me of is not understanding that orbital eccentricity is measured from the sun as opposed to being measured from the earth. And I never said that anywhere in the choice. What I was simply doing was giving people an example of how eccentric Mars' orbit is because of the fact that it basically by giving the example that it moves back and forth this tremendous distance from uh, its relative position to the Earth. That's simply an example of the fact that Mars' orbit is elliptical. That's all. 
You have your own little attacker there, huh? Well, yeah. I mean, this guy, I know who this guy is. Welcome to the world. Michael. You know, I mean, you know, and this is just, here's, George, here's the thing. I mean, I, believe me, the earlier versions of Mike Barrett would have really ripped into that guy. But the, the bottom line is, look, what I'm putting out, what Richard's putting out, it scares the heck out of people. It scares people who are invested in a certain way of thinking and in a certain worldview. Sure. And I, I think... What's going to happen is that those people are going to be really upset by the things that are going to be happening in the next few years. And really, we have to approach them with compassion, but I've, even I've got my limits. So, Is he a physicist? I mean, does, no, is he a scientist? No, he's, he's not. He's an engineer. No, I know. Oh, he is an engineer. Yeah. You do know. You've met him at I, Well, I, I have corresponded with him. He's harassed both of my publishers. He's created a blog to attack me. It's pretty crazy stuff. To attack and again, you? And again, it's always, it's always just simply taking putting words into my mouth that I never said and then accusing me of being wrong about what I said when I never, in fact, said those things. So well, Richard's used know, to that. You, you run with the with the big dogs, Mike. That's what happens. You stick your <laughs> yeah. neck out. I I've mean, got to develop happens. a thicker skin, right. I guess. I've got my little uh, little group of haters out there, too. You yeah, know, I know. It's, just, it's I know. just the way they are. They, uh, they need to move on. So what's your reaction after hearing that again? <laughs> <laughs> I must say, students... It's pretty amusing to hear that uh, a year later. <clears throat> well, first of all, uh, um, I'm not scared. If, <laughs> I'd love to uh, to meet Michael and explain that no reading um, <laughs> reading stuff about physics that is completely inaccurate does not make me scared at all. It makes me dismayed actually that um, that kind of nonsense can find a publisher. And the other, the other reaction I have is it's amazing how often he says, I never said that. That's his, his um, standard response to criticism. I never said that. Well, uh, the fact is that I was reading word for word, page 34, the choice. So uh, he did say that, and it's completely wrong. So he... I don't quite understand why he continues to say that Mars eccentricity is huge when measured from Earth, when it just it doesn't make any sense. And he says he, he didn't say that, that he was just using it to make a point, but then he, he goes back and says that it was actually a factual statement, and... It just doesn't quite make any sense, and I was wondering if you, by chance, had any insight into what's going on with his thought process, or what, why he's actually claiming that. Like, why is it important to him to make such a geometrically wrong thing that any grade school student would be able to tell you this is not how you define an ellipse? Right. Um, well, I do have a, a bit of an insight. He he made things a bit worse the following day by writing this. I was simply using the example of the wildly varying distance between the Earth and Mars as an example of how eccentric Mars' orbit is. If both orbits were circular, there would be no such variation. They would maintain basically the same distance relative to each other. It is Mars' orbital eccentricity which creates this 200 million mile variation. So there you go. There's the insight. The insight is that he simply doesn't understand. Uh, so could you uh, explain why that's wrong? 
or so yeah, uh, yeah. yes yes the eccentricity of mars is in fact very slight it's uh, it is 0.09 eccentricity it's um it's aphelion is 154 million miles perihelion 128 million james oberg uh, contributed uh, this he he wrote that um the eccentricity contributes a very small amount to the difference between the closest and farthest approaches of the two planets. But he continued with this, even a planet with nearly zero eccentricity, such as Venus, varies its distance from Earth between 26 million and 160 million, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with eccentricity. Right, so it's just the basic fact that Earth and Mars and also Venus and all the other planets have a different orbital distance from the sun. So they take a shorter or a longer time to go around, and so Earth effectively passes Mars in its orbit, and it they just they orbit differently. It has nothing to do, really, with the eccentricity. Yeah, well, as James Erberg said, the eccentricity contributes a very minor amount to that. But, I mean, how can... How can Mars and Earth possibly uh, maintain the same distance to each other when Mars's uh, year is 1.9 Earth years? It's just um, it's just wrong. It's wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of how it could physically work, and the only way that it would really work is if Earth and Mars actually had the same distance from the Sun, or at least the same average distance from the Sun. But even if it were the same average distance, they could still vary significantly. So that brings us a little bit to uh, actually uh, the claim that you've contacted his publishers to try to get them to change the book or to retract it or something. Um, have you actually done that? I didn't um, contact the publisher of the choice. I did complain to Adam Parfrey, the publisher of Dark Mission, that he was dishonest in promoting the, the second edition of the book. That's the only contact I've had. Okay, uh, so later on in that episode of Coast to Coast, as a follow-up, another caller complained that you had actually been cut off. Um, I'm going to play that clip now and would like your reaction to it. The guy that, that this last caller too mentioned the, the engineer that called in about the Mars, whatever differences you guys had on that, yeah. was that, that, I mean, George, I was really kind of surprised that you guys, you know, cut him off without allowing him to, you know, have a little bit of a um, philosophical spar, so to speak, about that. Why, why, why did you cut him off and not allow him to at least, you know, have a well, debate but, on that? Because I didn't hear anything philosophical coming from him. And as Mike had said, He's been attacking him constantly. I didn't see any dialogue there. It was interesting. I just was, you know, a little more curious to hear what he had to say versus what Mike had to say. I haven't followed you. Well, I apologize. Really, you know, he, wasn't, I just... he wasn't. I mean, what he was really doing, there's a, there's a psychological game called Now I've Got You, you SOB, and you know, <laughs> fill in what SOB means. And that's what he's trying to do. But he's, what he's doing is he's, he's, he was trying to, to point the things that he says that I said that I never said. And then saying that I'm wrong for saying them. In other words, so, and it was just a—it's a very silly technical argument. He—he's just—he knows that I never said what he's accusing me of saying in the book. 
and that what I put in the book is not wrong. But he's just really got an issue with me. So, you know, I don't really want to I've, – I've tried to talk sense to the man. I've, I've emailed him many, many times. You know, the first thing he ever wrote, he accused me of, and Richard of lying, of making things up, everything up in Dark Mission, of fabricating images of the moon, of Richard fabricating the images of the, the robot's head on, on the moon. And, I, you know, I mean, I've given him enough time in my life, and I'm not putting any more energy into him. So I don't – you know, thank you, George, for doing that. Well, once again, he, um, Mike Barrett goes on his, I never said that. What I put in the book is not wrong. Um, but it, it simply is. It simply is wrong. And it's not the only wrong piece of physics that he puts in the book. We'll get to that in a minute. I wanted to point out that George Nouri, who cut me off, is in fact, uh, an, an official endorser of this book. I have the book in front of me right now, and on the back cover we have this. The Choice is the best book I have read on explaining how our 3D reality actually works. Quote from George Norrie, radio host, Coast to Coast AM. So I would suggest that we have here a very severe conflict of interest. I would agree with that, having actually just filled out a conflict of interest form for my own job. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's... It's impressive uh, that these these ideas that you know, normal people deal with uh, in terms of conflict of interests and in terms of uh, you know, actually facing your accuser and actually having a an informed discussion doesn't really apply in this type of situation, or at least uh, it's avoided at all costs. Yes, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's okay. My, one of my daughters used to be a radio host in England, and uh, she listened to the, to the tape of this, and she said, they, they must be crazy. So far as I'm concerned, as, as a host of a chat show on the radio, what you want is a little bit of controversy, a little bit of argument. They must be mad. <laughs> I'd agree with that. Um, I mean, if, you know, besides just basic intellectual honesty... Um, or dishonesty in this case, that's that would have made a great discussion to actually have, you know, to have you and have Mike actually sort of hash out some of these things and to have a discussion, you know, just like that second caller asked for, because it it would have made sense. It would have made great radio. It would have actually engaged people and possibly engaged a few neurons in someone's brain. Yes, I agree. Well, you know. That- I think Coast to Coast is a bit strange. They do have this um, policy of allowing their guests to say anything and not challenge them. Uh, and that's all very well, but I think a challenge from a caller should be should have been allowed, absolutely, yes. Yeah, well, uh, Coast to Coast uh, does make good fodder for podcasts and blogs like mine. So, so <laughs> that, that is one benefit. So you had mentioned that there were some other... Uh, issues in the book, uh, the choice besides just this whole eccentricity issue of Mars. Uh, what's another good one? Yes, I, well, I, I blogged about this at the time, um, and I'll link up I, to your blog on a yeah on the notes. Here, here are a few uh, just at random. Uh, he writes on page thirty-two that the centrifugal force of Earth's rotation tends to make us heavier. Of course, that's absolutely wrong. It would tend to make us lighter. Because centrifugal force is an outwards force from yeah. the axis of rotation. 
On page 60, he writes that Newton's laws of motion only work if the object being measured doesn't rotate. Well, Mike, I think the planet Earth rotates, doesn't it? And um, how many uh, satellites have now been launched that obey the laws of, of Newton? Probably hundreds of thousands by now. On page 128, he writes that the International Space Station is really called ISIS. <laughs> that will come as a surprise to everybody who built it and has ever inhabited it. What's the point of claiming that it's actually called ISIS? Oh, it's, it's part of Hogan and Barra's um, perennial claim that NASA worships uh, Egyptian gods. Ah, yes. really don't think we have time to get into that. I've, I've analyzed that at great length on my blog. It's a, of course, it's total rubbish, but they, they keep saying it. Yeah, I think that would be a several hours long discussion. It would, yes. Page 139, he tells us that Faraday cages are made of lead. Okay. <laughs> it would be a strange Faraday cage that was made of lead. It would probably not be completely non-functional, but it would be very inefficient, also very expensive. Faraday, the, the property of a Faraday cage is that it conducts electricity very well. Lead is not a very good conductor. Faraday cages are made of copper or aluminium, as I like to say, aluminum, as you Americans would have it. Yeah. And then if I, if I may um, get into something a little bit more length, the whole of Chapter 12 is based on a completely mistaken interpretation of the orbit of Explorer 1, which was America's first satellite launched in uh, 1958. Okay. Now, <clears throat> it, is, it is interesting um, that the, the orbit was uh, greater than was anticipated. As in, it or its orbital distance from Earth was larger than they thought. It, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it was planned to be 352 by 1600 kilometers. In fact, it was 357 by 2547 kilometers. So Mike Barrow notices that, and he says, "Oh, look at that." The um, the apogee is 60% higher than uh, was was planned. Well, <laughs> he absolutely, once again, does not understand orbital mechanics. The um, orbit of a satellite is, of course, always an ellipse, and the 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 uh, the, the, the degree by which that orbit uh, differs from what it was planned should really be calculated on the semi-major axis of the ellipse. That's that's the one-half of the long diameter of the ellipse, okay? I'm not going to hit your, your listeners with a, a bunch of math, but I will just say that, of course, you then you have to take into account the entire diameter of planet Earth in your calculations. So, in fact, the planned semi-major axis was 7,351 7, kilometers. The actual semi-major axis is, works out to 7,827, which is an excess of just 
not 60%. Furthermore, if you actually do the calculation, which I certainly won't go through, thank you. What, what, what the velocity of, of the satellite was at orbit insertion, that comes out to uh, just about 4%. So that is well within the variation that you might expect from the solid rocket fuel of 1958. Especially because so this was America's first attempt, really. Yes, yes it was. And it was a four-stage rocket. The first stage was was uh, liquid fuel. And the top three stages were clusters of little solid fuel rockets called baby sergeants. They were military rockets, basically short-range missiles, and it was absolutely known that, their, uh, that, the, that the performance of the solid rocket fuel was, was had some slop in it. And in fact, for that entire reason, they rotated those stages so that the um, if there was variation in the thrust of the, of the rocket um, clusters, it, it, would, it would balance out. So the whole of uh, Mike Barra's Chapter 12 is based upon a complete misunderstanding. So, the, And the misunderstanding, again, to reiterate, was basically that he calculated the distance of the satellite from Earth's surface as opposed to from the center of the planet. And because of that, That's... he got a variation from planned versus what actually happened of 60% instead of 6%. Correct. Absolutely. That that seems like a very big difference. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, in fact, he he went even further. He he wrote that um, that uh, attempt to to explain this discrepancy by natural means have not stood up to scrutiny. I, I would like to know who scrutinized them. Uh, the, the the main explanation is that, uh, as I say, is the variation in. Um, Rocket fuel. I I could um, I could re- refer you to a technical paper that describes the variation in that type of rocket fuel well within six percent. Yeah, if you can send that to me, then I'll uh, go ahead and post it up with the show notes for this episode. Yeah, yeah, sure, I will. Yes, and and the other possible contribution is um, is high altitude winds. That that was suggested as a a contributory factor too. So, how does Barra attempt to explain this discrepancy? Because he says there's no natural means, apparently. I mean, is he saying yeah, it was at the well, hand of God, or what? Uh-huh. No, this gets into the New Age stuff. Uh, it was really Hoagland rather than Barra who said that, it, that the discrepancy is accounted for by the fact that it's rotating. Ah. And indeed, um, Richard Hoagland was on Coast to Coast AM for four hours one night. I think it was August 2008. That may well be, yes. He was um, explaining this theory that it was rotation that caused it. Yeah, I've been meaning to uh, do a, a blog post about that, but it's just, it's so... it's. It's so much stuff to parse through uh, and actually put it into sort of a thumbnail sketch of what he is actually saying is fairly difficult. 
but you're saying it's basically he explains it by it's not normal physics. It's this rotational uh, – he likes to call it the torsion physics stuff. Yeah, that's right. He says he says that um, just the mere fact of it rotating, uh, it pulls energy from uh, some anti-gravity uh, hyperdimensional um, dimension that we cannot perceive. And he wrote uh, an entire um, web page about it, whose mathematics were disgracefully wrong. <laughs> Have you uh, analyzed that one as well? Yes. Okay. Yes, I did on my blog. Yes. Okay, and yeah, so I'll I'll post many many links to your blog in the show notes for this post, so that uh, the listeners can go to it for more information if they'd like to go through and understand in I'm I'm assuming painstaking detail of everything and everywhere that they go wrong in their calculations for this. Yeah, that one was really really bad. <laughs> he attempted to. Apply a well-known equation, uh, which uh, calculates the, the the velocity of a rocket stage at the end of its burn, and um, I mean the whole point of a multi-stage rocket is that you make that calculation stage by stage, because the empty stages are then dropped off and the mass becomes much less. Well, he uh, tried to apply that equation once only to all three of the solid upper stages. In so doing, he completely failed to evaluate a logarithm. So all in all, it was a big, big fail. All right. Well, um, I think that's um, about all the questions I had, although I did have one final question. Um, if you had Mike Barra or Richard Hoagland alone in a room and they actually had to listen to you or answer your questions, what would you say to them and or what would you ask of them? Hmm. Um, I think my favorite would be um, the this um, question of uh, NASA's worship of Egyptian gods because uh, that's, that's something that they both go on about a great deal. It's completely false, and uh, I can prove it. And uh, everything that they've written about it is totally wrong. And I would like to make them face up to that. Is there, um, uh, just for background, is there a, a quick way to explain why they say that NASA worships Egyptian gods, or what the what the whole purpose is for their uh, the mythos that they've built up? The allegation is that NASA schedules launches and landings when any of five stars are at any of five elevations as seen from the point of view of the either the launch site or Houston. Okay. Um. And, uh, in fact, um, Mike Barra, in one of his public lectures, went so far as to say this, NASA always seems to want to launch or land when things are are ritual in the skies, all, note that word always. That's that's what I'd like to draw his attention to. If I had, if I if I could get him in a room, uh, they, they neither Hogan nor Barra has produced any convincing evidence that this has been done even once, let alone always. 
I think it would actually be interesting to have either Hoagland or Barra forced to answer a question from a critic who actually does know what they're talking about, as opposed to the completely credulous, quote-unquote, interviews given by George Norrie on Coast to Coast. It's, it would be interesting to actually have them forced to do a real interview and actually answer uh, some of the many, many criticisms that have been leveled. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. It would be quite something to take on because um, although Hoagland talks a lot of rubbish, he's a very, very accomplished public speaker and he thinks very fast on his feet. Debating him would be quite a challenge, I must say. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, it also gets into the whole question of if if you're going to debate or if you're thinking of debating someone like Hoagland or Barra or Deepak Chopra or any of these types of people, what are you actually trying to accomplish? Because it's highly unlikely that you would quote-unquote win because they are so much more familiar with their ideas than you are that the terms of the debate from the outset would have to be very well stated and you would need a moderator that would force them to actually stick to those like for example you wouldn't be able to do a gish gallop you wouldn't be able to go from one claim to the next you'd actually have to just focus on that issue and address the criticisms as opposed to going from one to the next the next the next the next <clears throat> yes i agree and george norrie would not be the right the right um, um a moderator of such a debate at all he uh, he, he famously allowed Hogan to completely shout down on the, the, what's the guy's name, head of the Mars Society, Zubrin. Uh, Zubrin, yeah. He just, he simply shouted him down. That was, that was difficult to listen to. That was uh, an older Coast to Coast episode. I want to say maybe, uh, maybe last year as well, 2010 or maybe early 2011. It was, it was hard to listen to because there was a point where Zubrin finally just said, Richard, Am I going to be allowed to talk or should I just hang up now? Because, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was really what it was like. I mean, Richard just kept talking and talking and talking. And he actually did that recently to another Coast to Coast AM host, uh, Rob Simone, who had started out by saying, Richard, this is great. I, I, I'm really glad to be able to talk with you because you were some of my inspiration for this. And then throughout that one-hour interview – Richard just talked over Simone, belittled him, treated him like a grade schooler, being like, so let me ask you this question. If you were paying attention, here's what the answer should be. And uh, yes, well. Very, uh, it's, very patronizing. I, I thought that was excruciating because Richard Hoagland's uh, 20,000 followers on his uh, Facebook page got it completely wrong. The next day, they all complained that Rob Simone shouted down Richard Hoagland. So, so they, they got it completely the wrong way around. Well, I think at that point, you know, everyone has their own uh, true believer followers, and nothing that their the person that they follow does can be wrong. That's but, uh, very true, I, especially in in that case. Yes, the, it's 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 got very cult like uh, features that that follow. Well, I think at this point we've. Uh, We've digressed somewhat from the uh, the Ho uh, from the Barra book and the choice and uh, the wrong astronomy and science there. Uh, so I think unless there's anything else uh, that you wanted to say, that uh, we can wrap this up. 
Absolutely. Wrap it up. That's fine. I enjoyed it. Um, and I hope that your, 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 your own tribe, your own cult of people who listen to this, uh, enjoy it too. And I do as well. And, uh, I'd appreciate feedback, uh, from the loyal, uh, or maybe unloyal listeners, uh, on how this went and what you guys thought. Uh, so thank you again, expat, for agreeing to do this interview. And uh, thank you for your expertise on the issue, because I I do not know much about the uh, rocket history of NASA. And it's nice to talk with someone who actually does. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks again to Expat for agreeing to give up some of his time for this interview. The next regular show will be on November 16th, followed by the bonus interview about a week later with Carl Mamer, the conspiracy skeptic. The Q&A, Puzzler, and Feedback will return in the next regular episode of the podcast, if anyone sends me a question for Q&A. That wraps up this interview on the 10th episode of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email to podcast.sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also tell your friends, family, and frenemies. 